Hi, and welcome to the Hospice News Elevate podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I am uh, pleased to be speaking with Caitlin Cromit, the founder and president of Dreamcatchers. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. And can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Dreamcatchers and what you do there? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be on. So I am, like you said, the founder of Dreamcatchers. I started Dreamcatchers Foundation when I was in high school. I was around 15 years old when I started doing uh, this. And essentially what Dreamcatchers is, is we're a nonprofit and we empower youth in high school and college to fulfill end-of-life dreams of hospice patients. So very intergenerational. And yeah, I, I run Dreamcatchers. I do some speaking around end-of-life and I'm about to be pursuing my master's in gerontology. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> oh, excellent. And how do you finance the work you're doing in, in Dreamcatchers? Yeah, since we're a nonprofit, we're pretty much run on donations. So we do have an amazing corporate partner in EHO. They're a hospice PBM. They support a lot of our work. We also apply for grants. We have individual donors and our individual chapters. So they're based in, in schools, in high schools and colleges, and they do their own fundraising as well in their communities where they're based. So all sorts of things, but we primarily rely on, on donors and the generosity of our communities where we're based. Excellent. Thank you. And do you work or communicate with hospice providers in the course of your work? We do, yes. We partner with hospices all around the country. So that's, we either start chapters through knowing a student at a school or through knowing a hospice that would like to partner with Dreamcatchers. So we have hundreds of hospice partnerships across the country and essentially work with our hospice partners to get referrals to these dreams of their patients. So because our mission is to fulfill dreams of hospice patients specifically, we rely on our hospice partners to connect us to those patients. And as we call them, dreamers, once we receive their dream and are working on it. So, yes, yeah, so we have partnerships in different communities wherever we have chapters. And we have about 50, 40 to 50 chapters across the country right now. So each chapter typically has one or two hospitals. And uh, how did Dreamcatchers come to be? Can you tell us a little bit about how you, you know, started the organization, how it came together? Yeah, for sure. So it was definitely not a planned thing. <laughs> I feel like that's typically what happens to people, right? But I had started volunteering with a hospice around the age of 12. I was following my older sister there. And obviously, you can't do a lot when you're 12 in terms of patient interaction and things like that. So I was volunteering in the office and got to know a lot of the hospice staff who are absolute angels, of course, just a different species of human that work in hospice. And I was really inspired by them. Kind of over the next few years was wanting to get more involved in the hospices and do more, especially because I saw that there weren't a lot of other young people around my age that were volunteering with hospice and that even knew what hospice was. So that made me really excited to do more. And so around 14, 15, I was looking for an idea of like what I could do. I started singing at memorial services for the families of the patients who had passed in the last year. I started playing music for them and I was just trying to brainstorm different things I could do that would really make a difference in their lives. And that's when I saw the movie Patch Adams with Robin Williams. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a great one. And there was a scene in that movie that specifically inspired me a lot, which is when he filled the pool full of spaghetti, full of noodles for that older woman who said that she had always dreamed of swimming in a pool of cooked noodles. Mm -hmm. And so 
that being based on a true story, based on Dr. Pat Jadams, of course, that was really inspirational to me to give someone of that age that we don't typically focus much on, especially in, in this country, we, to give them, you know, something that they always wanted to do a dream when a lot of times they aren't asked. And so that was kind of where the idea of dream catchers came to be of like making these dreams come true for people who are at the end of their lives, who maybe aren't asked what they want to do one last time or what they've never gotten the chance to do. And so I just started doing that with the hospice where I was volunteering. I presented this idea to their board, to their staff. And I was like, hey, if anyone has a dream, you know, any of your patients, something that they can't stop talking about, let me know and I'll try and make it happen. So kind of, uh, I was going to say long story short, but that wasn't that short. <laughs> started to do that on my own. My friends expressed interest. So I decided to start a club at my high school. And then it just gradually grew and grew over the next 10, 12 years here. So it's been really cool to see that other young people are now interested in doing things for this population that a lot of times, you know, we don't really have the opportunity to volunteer with them or it's not like front and center in our minds at that age to be focusing on this population. So that's kind of how it started and how it's kind of taken off, I guess. (laughs) Can you say any more about what drew your attention to the end of life space? Yeah, sure. I don't, you know, I, from a young age, I was always really interested in older generations. I always like, liked spending time with my grandparents, with other people's grandparents, just like being around older people made me feel comfortable, like even more than people my age. And so I started to realize that I kind of had this affinity for spending time with these older generations. And that's when I got involved with the hospice. And I think after meeting so many hospice staff and hearing their stories and hearing about what they do, it was just so interesting to me and so beautiful how they could do that for people and be around these people at such a critical time in their lives. And so I just got really more and more interested in it and how we handle death and dying and end of life in our country specifically. We don't typically talk about it very much. And especially knowing the stigma that hospice has, it's something that I really became interested in helping to change and wanting to really highlight that amongst the young people that we work with in our chapters. Excellent. And uh, what are some of the things that you've done for patients? What are some of the dreams that you've fulfilled? There's all sorts. It's quite a range. I always say there's like from the most simple thing you could think of, like we've had a hundred year old man who just wanted to play horseshoes in the park with his friends. And we made that happen for him to a more elaborate one of a World War II vet who wanted to fly again. And so he went up in the same plane that he actually trained in in the war. And he he went up, it was one of those two-seater planes and flew around Scott Tucson. This is in Arizona. So we have all sorts of things like that. We have a lot of like hot air balloon rides. We'll do helicopter rides. And then we'll have simpler things like family reunions, family dinners, anniversaries. One that's being worked on right now is a trip to a sports game, a trip to the ocean or the beach for the last time or the first time or whatever it is. So it just really ranges, but each of them has such a significant impact and such a special story of like why they want that. And I think that's really cool, not only for me to see, but for all the students that are actually fulfilling these dreams and doing that work for them. Can you think of any particular, like particular instances with particular patients that, you know, really sticks out in your memory? One that really struck you? 
Hmm. There's so many. I would say when I was in high school and first started Dreamcatchers, these were some of the first interactions that I had with people on hospice. And some of those were so meaningful to me. Like I met this woman, her name was Pat. And she, when I first met her, she was telling me that her dream was to die and go to heaven to join her husband who had recently passed. And I was like, okay, well, I can't really do that for you. (laughs) But is there anything else that you might want to do or or do one last time or dream of? And she just started talking about how much she loved to travel and specifically travel to China, which was her favorite place to go. And that she had boxes and boxes of photo slides that she collected over the years. And so what I ended up doing is going to spend time with her every Sunday for a couple months. And she would just tell me her stories of China. And I was writing them down and compiling a slideshow so that we could give this presentation to her friends that she lived near. And that was really powerful to me just to get to know Pat. And we became friends, really. And I got to share so much with her and and learned so much from her. And then there was there was the very first dream that I did, which was for a man named Bernie, who was diagnosed with ALS and had sailed his whole life. He had loved the ocean. And so he dreamed of sailing again because he hadn't done it in years because of this disease. And he that day was just so memorable to me because it was my very first dream that I ever granted. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, you know, I'm not really comfortable yet with interacting with these people that I don't know. His family invited me out on the sailboat that we planned for them. I was planning on just letting them have this like family day. And they're like, no, 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 Caitlin, come out with us. And so I just spent a couple hours with them talking and getting to know Bernie and really realizing that this is what I was meant to be doing. So it was really cool to be a part of that. And then when he passed a few months after that, they actually rented out the same sailboat that we had that day to scatter his ashes on the ocean. And it was just sort of like a full circle thing for me because I hadn't really experienced death before. And so seeing that happen and getting to witness that day with him and then and then be a part of his sort of celebration of his life was really cool. And that was just, you know, one of those things where I was like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> So I see, I know you have chapters in multiple states. Can you give us a sense of uh, the scale of Dreamcatchers? Like how many chapters do you have? Where are they located? And how did you pursue that expansion? Yeah, for sure. So we are hoping in a year or two that we will have a, a chapter in every state across the country. But for now, we're in about 17 states and we have about 45 chapters And they're based, again, in high schools or colleges, so either or. We have a high concentration of chapters sort of on the West Coast. I live in Los Angeles, so we have a lot in California. We have quite a few in Arizona, which is where our board of directors is based. And we have several just random places. Like we have one in Iowa, Indiana, Florida, Texas, New York. So we're kind of just scattered. We have a map that will be going on our new website soon uh, with where those chapters are. But essentially, when I first started growing Dreamcatchers, when I when I was in college, I went to Notre Dame, and they actually sponsored me to go around the country expanding Dreamcatchers. And I didn't know what I was doing. I went with one other student, and we just kind of selected states that we had some sort of connection to, whether it be a family member or a school or something like that. And we just started talking to schools and talking to hospices as much as we could. And trying to get that interest. And that's sort of how the growth started 
And since then, it's pretty much been through word of mouth, really. And when I, I'll speak at some youth conferences occasionally and we'll, we'll expand that way. But it's really through word of mouth of students that want to get involved or hospices that are interested in partnering with us. Excellent. And how do you foster connections with new hospice partners? Yeah, so it's we try to make it really easy on our hospice partners because we know they have a million things going on, and so we don't want to add something else to their plate. We mostly want to take away from their plate and make it easier for them to do things for their patients that maybe they always wanted to do because I'm sure many hospice providers and care staff out there have experienced that where they have a patient that tells them, you know, about something they want to do one last time. So basically we have a simple form that they fill out and we, if there's a student chapter near them, perfect. We partner them up. If there's not, we usually ask for their help in maybe finding a local school that might be interested in hosting a student chapter, or if they know a student, maybe someone someone on their staff has a kid or a niece or a nephew or something that's in high school or college nearby. So we usually look to them to help us find those connections with students. But other than that, we basically have a simple agreement to partner, which basically states that they'll be a solid partner for our student chapter. There's no cost or anything for hospice partners, and we just want our student chapters to have a place to get their dream request referrals. So we keep it super easy, and we typically just have a liaison on the student side and on the hospice side so that they can communicate that way. Excellent. And uh, can you say a little more about your speaking engagements, kind of where you go, you know, what you present, who you speak to? Yes, absolutely. So I've been speaking for about six years now. And I originally started speaking on, because of the connection between young and old generations in our student chapters and with dream catchers, I got really passionate about the idea of generations. And so I, I began speaking on that, on like creating stronger connections across generations to both young people, to all sorts of different industries, and sort of focusing on like the multi-generational workforce. And in the past year, not even, I've transitioned to speaking on the different things that I've learned along the way running Dreamcatchers and really how we can all kind of take those lessons and apply them to our own lives. So I've started speaking on lessons from the dying that I've kind of compiled over my 12 years working with people at the end of life and and watching other young people interact with people at the end of their lives and and just kind of putting that in a, in a way that's really both inspirational because they're really the words from these people who were dying and giving people ways and, and things that they can do to sort of shift their perspective on life and on the different aspects of life so that, you know, none of us are at the end of life and regretting something or wishing we'd done something differently. So I speak a lot to, to all sorts of different industries, really, but I love it. And it, and it gives a good opportunity to not only spread the word about dream catchers, but really just kind of share these messages that I think are so important that I've been lucky enough to learn throughout my life, learning from people who are at the end of it. Can you uh, give a couple of examples, maybe, of some of the things you've learned? Yeah, sure. So there's so many, <laughs> but... To give you a little teaser, a lot of them are pretty, they're seemingly simple lessons, but I think when we frame them around this concept of, you know, not waiting until it's too late to, for example, to live your dreams, right? Something as like cheesy sounding as that is, it's really true. And, and once we, once I've, you know, shared some of these stories about people who, are at the end, it really kind of shines a light on that. And things like 
presence, like how how much it matters to be the classic phrase, like being here now. But really when we ask these people at the end of their lives what they want, anything they want, right? We don't give them limitations. We don't say, you know, it has to be in this budget range or anything like that. Most of the time they, they want, they are really looking for presence and they're looking for those simple connections. They're also looking for simple things, right? It's not always like an extravagant thing that they look for. So there's just so many things and I could go on, but there are just so many lessons that I've learned that really take seemingly simple, basic things and make us realize that, you know, maybe we're not really living by that. Uh, We can say we are and we think we want to, but it's not until we actually hear it from people who are at the end, how much it matters. So I think that's what's been really uh, cool for me to be able to learn and then share and pass on these legacies. Excellent. Well, Caitlin, again, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in to listen. Please take care. Thank you so much. Thank you.